welcome to uh, the year-end edition of the Francis Farmer Show. Uh, we are coming to you under uh, trying circumstances. We have uh, one of our uh, members, her power is out, so Melissa won't be joining us unless uh, the power company finally fixes electricity in, in the Bellingham area. And uh, I'm having like weird audio issues, so if this sounds really bad, it's, uh, it's all my fault and I can't fix it. So what we do have is uh, me, Sean, along with uh, uh, two of our Seattle Screen Scene writers. We have Evan Morgan. Say hi, Hello. Evan. And Ryan Swen. Hello. And we're going to talk about some of the movies that we saw in 2017. That's basically all I got. Um, I, <laughs> I figured we weren't, didn't really want to do uh, like a top ten list or or anything like that that we've done in years past because that's kind of boring and you get into like what counts as a twenty seventeen film and what doesn't and all that is just obnoxious. So uh, I thought we'd do kind of like we did with our with our festival podcasts where we just kind of everybody picked a movie and we just talked about it it'd be very unstructured and no uh non-hierarchical so sounds with, great with that uh evan why don't you go ahead and and start us off with a movie okay a movie the movie uh of the year for me i think uh which i'm sure you guys would uh, probably be picking if it uh, wasn't the one I was going to bring up is Bahubali 2, mm. uh, the second film uh, in this uh, world that SS Rajamuli uh, started with Bahubali the Beginning, which came out, uh, I believe, two years ago. Yeah. In 2015. Yep. Um, and this was really the, uh, the highlight of of like theater going experiences that I had this year. Uh, I saw it in Bellevue, uh, which has a pretty big Indian community uh, here in the Seattle area. And the energy that was like just totally palpable in that theater, I think is, is sort of inseparable from the experience of watching it, uh, watching the movie for me. I've, I've wanted to watch it again, but have even been a little bit uh, trepidatious to go back and revisit it uh, without the sort of, the vibe of that crowd, which was just uh, totally into the movie. But uh, basically it, it tells uh, this sort of epic uh, mythological story uh, set in this uh, sort of mythic Indian world. Um, and I like it just, I think Sean, you had on Letterboxd uh, said something about like uh, sort of mocking Hollywood spectacle uh, in comparison to this film. And for me, like that's aside from the the reaction of the crowd watching the movie, the just sheer scale of imagination on display uh, in this film, and the the sort of like heights to which S. S. Rajamouli is willing to take his sort of broke broke uh, like CGI imaginings of this world uh, were really the most exciting thing about the film uh, for me, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I liked the first film uh, when I had seen it, but I think it was somewhat of a more uh, unfamiliar terrain for me. I've, I've become a little bit more familiar with Indian cinema over the uh, intervening years since that film had come out. Uh, and also I had seen that one in a Hindi 
dub. And I got to see this film in uh, Telugu, which I think made a huge difference. It really changed the rhythm of the film, which I think has a um, almost like a drum beat to it. The, the not just the language, but the the music and the editing has this sort of like really almost like Wagnerian um, like Sturm und Drang to it. And something about seeing it, that original film, which I just I don't think is quite as good either, but seeing it in the Hindi dub. Um, sort of, I think, took some of that away for me. Uh, so, anyways. Uh, I, yeah, I've I've seen the first one in three different languages now. I, I think there are four language versions. I've seen three of them. Uh, the first one I saw was Hindi, and then I saw... Then I got the Telugu version and saw that before the new one came out. And then when they were both on Netflix, they're on Netflix in three languages, none of which is Telugu, so... I watched. I wanted to watch them both, and uh, so I watched the Tamil version on Netflix. And Tamil is closer to Telugu mm -hmm. than, than Hindi, but uh, yeah, Telugu is the way to go. And they're they're both on YouTube now. In right, yeah, you can find the, the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched them uh, back to back a week ago um, on YouTube, and I should note that I'm very very unfamiliar with uh, Bollywood or Bollywood adjacent films and I definitely agree that uh, I I preferred the second one more and I was surprised at like how different it felt in a way uh, I we should note that the that there are essentially two parts of one film pretty yeah. much yeah like the it's the first one ends on like a narrative cliffhanger or like a, a revelation cliffhanger that the second one immediately picks up on. And so, but I was still surprised like at how, how different narratively, even structurally it feels, and even like in terms of, of intense. And while I definitely agree with you on the notion of the spectacle, it's interesting to what ends they're used in Bahubali 2, um, because the first one is almost solely about the action and the crazy set pieces. Whereas Bahubali 2 is, it feels almost like a, like a royal tragedy to me. Like there's, and it moves through a lot of different modes. Like there's even a solid 45 minutes or so. That's almost like a romantic comedy in a way, which is still leavened by all of, by, there are action moments, but they're used in a way that feels totally unlike uh, anything in the first film or even parts of the second film. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like, I think the action is more integrated in this one uh, with the the characters. Like, I think uh, I really like uh, Prabhas, who is the the lead actor in in this film, and he. Again, I liked him in the first one, but he seemed to reveal a, a lot more sort of depth of character and uh, different sort of layers to his uh, his performance in this film. And I think like the way, especially in that sequence you're talking about, Ryan, where he goes to the the palace of uh, the the woman that he ends up sort of uh, wooing in the film. Um, like their relationship is sort of a a dance that involves like the action of uh, of those like action set pieces and the way that I think the film reveals 
their character through the action uh, is something that, again, it's been a little while since I've seen the first film, but I don't remember uh, being as, uh, that the film was as sort of integrated in its ideas about uh, the people in the film and the action uh, as much as the second one is. Yeah, I mean, the just the the romantic element is much more developed in the in the second film. The romance in the first is it's basically just a couple of scenes and then it skips on to you know more important matters. But those scenes are really cool though. Yeah, they are I, definitely. I love how uh how the the two movies are structured to fit together. Uh they're they're mirror images. In that the first one, uh, the first two thirds takes place in the present, and the final third is flashback. And in the second, the first two thirds is flashback, and then the final third is in the present. So you, you put them together, and they're evenly split. It's just slightly off-centered. And the way the the way the film starts out just just tonally, it's very lighthearted. I mean, it, there's like the little prologue with the the woman, you know, dying in the river and holding baby uh, Bahubali aloft. Um, but then after that, it's like this fun adventure film where this, you know, incredibly strong guy, like, lifts a, a giant stone and <laughs> climbs a waterfall. And that's like the first hour of the movie is just him climbing the waterfall and uh, seducing this uh, woman. Uh, and then as like more of his past is revealed uh the the film becomes progressively darker and darker and darker it's like we 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 start out very very innocent and and happy and as we learn about like the wider world and society and and history uh things become much more much less uh exciting much less fun uh and then when we finally come back to this world it's all of that that sense of fun is has mostly disappeared it's what you're left with is like the sense of fatality that like everything has been preordained that we there are things that have to be accomplished and it, it's kind of tragic even though it ends happily and, and triumphantly and there's like crazy shit that happens in the final battle it's still it's got all of this weight of history behind it now that that tempers that excitement of the of the beginning mm -hmm. well and that's really sort of doubled by the fact that the the actors who are in the first film all play uh their sort of progenitor characters in the second film um you know so uh Prabhas, who plays uh bahubali in in the first film plays his father is it his father in this one his father is Bahubali. Uh, his father is Bahubali. Yeah. Is the son is uh, is it Shiva? Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so th having the actors, I think, you know, uh, play those multiple characters, I think, reinforces, as you're saying, the way that when you cut back, when it cuts back to that, what is the present in the film uh, towards the end of the second uh, film, that it is sort of this uh, cyclical, inevitable. Uh, repetition of, of the history that is most of the second film. Yeah, and uh, I had read, in between the two films coming out, I read a, a version of the Mahabharata, the, the big Indian epic, uh, one of the two like 
major uh, Indian national epics. And I, and I know very little about Indian culture or Indian history or Indian film. But uh, reading this and watching the Bahubali movies, it, it, it struck me how similar they are. Um, like, it's, it seems to me that Bahubali is obviously, like, uh, an attempt to update the same kind of mythic story. It's like... Uh, like making a modern version of, of the Iliad or the Odyssey or something and mm. translating it not just into like contemporary cinematic terms, but just in temporary in contemporary political terms. Like I I think that Bahubali Bahubali too is as relevant to like present day American politics as any Hollywood film that came out this year. Up up to and including The Last Jedi. Uh just because of this idea of these two uh, opposed ways of uh, of wielding power, there's uh, Bahubali and and like the good guys who have this uh, externalized sense of honor that that dictates their actions, and then the bad guys will just see power as a, a game of power and will do any whatever it takes to to get in and maintain it, and it's not unlike what is going on. <laughs> in the U.S. today, uh, which, you know, speaking of like the cyclical nature of history, the the Mahabharata goes back like three thousand years. The stories in it, and yeah, it's it's depressing. But on the other hand, we can imagine like flying a, a swan boat through horse shaped clouds. So. The swan boat is is maybe the best part of the movie, uh, and that that song that happens uh, during that sequence when the boat takes off from the water and they're yeah in the coarse clouds uh, is like the, maybe the best scene in in any movie this year. Uh, I think that song is uh, is it Devasena's All Yours. I think that's the the song. Yeah, I just the the move the movie is, uh, are are so rich. Like there's so much in them, not just in in terms of spectacle, which they are like on surface, just brilliant, fun, entertaining, crazy spectacle. But they, I think they're also like serious, intelligent, well-constructed movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I to make it clear, I don't think that the the spectacle is is all that's there. I just think in a sure, sure. in an age where. Uh, that I think I think that's how they that... tend to be received, though. Yeah. Like the people who actually, <laughs> you know, listen to those of us who have been hyping the Bahubali movies for the last two years. The people who actually watch them—that's like the entry point. Is like this is crazy sure. spectacle. There's lots of CGI. Uh, some of it is uh, like not realistic, but I think there's a lot more going on going on in it. Than that. that it's why it's my favorite movie of the year yeah it was uh when i first saw the first one like i definitely felt that spectacle like was the almost entirely what grabbed me and then uh for the second that sense of the construction of narrative construction like really uh kicked in for me and i'd be curious to go back and see the first one and see if i had that sense but i feel like uh, especially to go back to your point about honor, that that is both for both good and ill. The way that's used uh, is in in the film, like uh, Bahubali, his 
character is doomed essentially because of his his honor, and uh, and the film makes it very clear that and doesn't attempt to cover up in any way that his his overwhelming goodness is also in a sense like what what dooms him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, not to uh, discuss the plot too in depth, but like the the way that each character responds to his essential goodness uh, is leads to his uh, leads to his demise. Yeah, it's great. I, I, <laughs> I mean, they're they're so they're so great and they're so much fun and they're so easy to watch and they're so readily available. Like you could just watch them on YouTube, mm-hmm. but you know, like getting people to, to actually watch it is, is a struggle. Like, I'd, like, time. I'd like recommend it to like, uh, like the SFCS group as we're <laughs> like preparing for our award award voting and every single person is like oh it's two and a half hours long i'm sorry well it was five hours to include yeah five hours five hours altogether but how long was blade runner 2049 that movie is like five hours long i saw that i saw that in theaters that's different yeah but it's like the quickest five hours well the first one did wear on me a little second one not so much which is weird since i watched it really late at night but still uh, that one the second one flew by much quicker for me. I would I would have liked to have seen these in in a crowded theater. When I I, I saw the first one on video and uh, just at home, and the the second one I saw in the theater, but it was like a ten o'clock at night show on a Sunday. There were like three other guys <laughs> in the in the audience. Uh, I mean, it was it was great seeing it on the big screen, but it didn't really have that that like theatrical experience that you were that you were talking about Evan. yeah i mean people were cheering as characters you know came onto the screen and and the big moments were happening it just felt you know yeah that that energy but but you know like with within five years someplace like the metrograph will be playing these as a double feature absolutely and like everyone will be like bahubli is so great why didn't anybody yeah. tell me about this and yeah i'll be shaking my fist <laughs> at Twitter. the young kids and their <laughs> ignorance of uh us bahubali supporters back when it came out exactly yeah i mean the one thing i, I guess th- that i think uh about the first film ryan that you're talking about about it sort of dragging it as i've thought more about the second film i i think the first one really does follow uh sort of beats that maybe are, are more familiar for Western viewers. Like it does follow a more sort of Campbellian uh, arc. And I think part of what has made the second one stick with me so much beyond the spectacle, I think as you guys have somewhat alluded to is that the, the way that it plays with the narrative feels like something more unfamiliar um, and, and something that's maybe less frequently present in these kinds of big, uh, big budget action kind of movies. So yeah, the the first one is more of an like a hero origin story, and actually exactly. two of them, right? Because well, you have, it's you have, you have like the son and his you know his hero's journey up the waterfall, and then you we have the flashback. You start with uh, Bahubli as like a little boy, right? 
and then mm. has like his yeah, training, that's... and then like his big uh, victory in battle. Yeah, that's true. But uh, like, I did not know that there was going to be a flashback. It's like right at the point where you expect like the first half of a of a long film to to end. Like there was another thirty minutes that I yeah, there's didn't a whole know other about. Film. Yeah. Or maybe like know that. 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, so I guess maybe two hero stories, uh, was, a, was an odd structural choice for me. Like at least like without knowing about what was going to happen in the second film or knowing about the structure of the first. Yeah. I, I mean, you watch them, you watch them back to back. Yes. Like right away. So I don't know. I th I would think they would play better just as one unit. That's how I watched. That's how I rewatched uh, the the conclusion. Is I watched <laughs> the two of them back to back. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if it's the first time you're watching it, maybe it it feels much longer. Well, the first one did. The second one didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That tends to be my experience with like really long movies, though. Is that the more times I watch them, the shorter they feel. Definitely. Like, you know what's going to happen. And yeah. you know the the particular pacing of different scenes. Yeah. Like, right now, I could watch Seven Samurai, and it'll feel like a 90-minute movie. Yeah. It's yeah. three and a half hours long. But. Anyway, we, we can't talk about Bahubali all night as much as <laughs> I would like to. Uh, so, Ryan, go ahead and, and pick a movie. Okay. Um, I'll pick uh, The Work. Um, it's a documentary about uh, group therapy that takes place in Folsom Prison. So specifically about the group therapy that takes place twice a year. For four days, outsiders, regular civilians, are allowed into the prison in order to undergo this very intense, uh, very intense group therapy with the inmates, like side by side, and. So it takes place over one of these, one such event like this, just documenting four days of this therapy, um, specifically focusing on a single group of, I think maybe 15 men. And from the very beginning, it's just completely devastating and intimate in a way that I really didn't expect. Like it's just, these waves of immense emotional catharsis as these grown men, some of whom are murderers, some of whom are, a lot of whom are gang members or former gang members, and the way that they work through their individual traumas uh, and the traumas that they've inflicted on others sometimes. And what's immediately most striking is like the very physical nature of these of these uh, emotional exorcisms like they feature these men like screaming at the top of their lungs like struggling against like five or six other members of the group who are like holding them back and like it's about like the struggle the push and pull between uh, between the persons who's being treated and the group and the the inmates and the outsider and even like the the viewer and the filmmaker, like there's just a very strong, very 
deeply compassionate way in which these therapy sessions are shown and it really struck me it was a complete shock did you see that one evan no i actually i haven't even heard of this uh film this sounds kind of fascinating though yeah, yeah. i first heard about it from uh, eric hines on reverse shot like i hadn't even heard of it and this piece was profoundly uh persuasive and i agree with it 100 yeah i think it it played for a couple of days at the at the Northwest Film Forum. Um, I saw it. It's it's very good, and uh, everything you say about it is correct. I, I didn't respond to it. I think as as highly as a lot of other people did, but that probably has more to do with my own uh, feelings about therapy and watching other people's therapy. Just kind of feels icky to me, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 very well done and uh, very harrowing and yeah, it's it's weird. It's like these these hyper masculine men sorting through their their issues almost entirely with their fathers through these like hyper masculine methods. It's it's all it's all very manly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> That's definitely one way of putting it. Yeah. And like, yeah, you said the, with their fathers and sometimes it's like their concerns about like some of them are fathers, like, and for the inmates who are in, uh, who are in prison while their, while their sons are growing up. And yeah, it's it's, definitely a great father's day film. (laughs) I I recommend everybody out there like finds it and, and watch it with your dad. It'll, it'll oh God! <laughs> <laughs> you'll you'll work through some stuff. You'll you'll feel better. There there may be a fight, but you know that's guy stuff. And, uh, yeah. How is and, it? Uh, how is it like structured as a documentary? Is it pretty? Uh, the the therapy or? session takes place over I think four days. Yeah. So uh, the film divides exactly into four like twenty minute. 25 minute sections so you just the there are people from outside the prison come in to join the prison group so it's like people who aren't prisoners at all just like dudes who have issues that they want to work out with other prisoners they they travel into the prison and then they join a group with a bunch of like some prisoners and some outside people and they all get together and talk about their their stuff so it's like it's just in in four parts and you see glimpses of like the however long the therapy sessions are i don't know they feel like they're like eight hours a day or something yeah that definitely sounds about right and yeah i'm wondering like i saw someone on twitter like i was talking with someone he brought up like what if you saw it like as a mini series format like there's something very striking about this com- hyper compression to 90 minutes and especially in the way that the it focuses again on one single group like there's i think maybe four other groups in the same uh in this same small room and like you occasionally and you you can catch glimpses of these other groups and you often hear them like you often hear like these yells coming from the other from 
from other the other side of the room, but the filmmakers never folk never like try to get a shot of that. It's part of the environment, but the focus is always always on this group, and it creates this immense bond that the viewer feels with these individual members. Like you can like they're all their faces are like imprinted in, and it's a very moving gesture, like just to invest so much energy and care into these, uh, this handful, these handful of men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's very, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's tough to watch though. It is. Yeah. And you you mentioned earlier about like about the uh like favorite scene of the year. Like I could there are like four like five or six scenes that I can name as like one of one of the best scenes of the year. And like for my money, like my favorite scene there's this like, there's this one moment where an inmate is telling another inmate like not to kill himself and he like holds him in this like huge hug and like the microphone is so muffled that it just picks up like their hearts beating yeah yeah and it's just this unexpected so emotional moment that it it really struck me the film really struck me film struck <laughs> uh, sorry thank you uh, yeah no uh, the work the work is terrific um, I guess it's my turn and uh, all right uh, I'll, I'll I'll pick the Hong Seng Su um, which we've we've talked about a lot I think we, Evan, you and I, we talked about the day after and Claire's camera. I think we talked about them on the the VIF podcast. Did we talk about them on the SIF podcast? I think we talked about yourself and yours on the SIF yeah. podcast. Yeah. Uh, basically, there were there were four Hong Sang Soo films that played in the Seattle screen scene orbit this year, and they're all terrific. Um, yes. I guess my my question for you, Evan, would be because you watched it at the same time as I did, and you had kind of the same, uh, like, relatively uh, lukewarm reaction to the day after that I did, I think. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wonder if, uh, like, at the time, we, we kind of predicted that, that that would be the more popular of the three movies when it started to play around in like East Coast film festivals. And I think that's proven to be the case. Like you look at the, the top le 10 lists that New York critics are putting out there and the day after is the one that's, that's being put on it. I wonder if you've in the intervening six months or however long it's been, if you've gotten higher on the day after, or if you're just annoyed that people are ignoring <laughs> on the beach at night alone and Claire's camera. I mean, I guess I, I don't think those are mutually exclusive options. I do think I have sort of warmed a little bit on the day after. Uh, I'm still not quite sure that uh, the 
structure of that film is among Hong's best and I do think is significantly less interesting than the structure of more or less all the other films that he's made in the last 10 years or so. Um, but I keep returning to that one shot uh, in the day after of Kim and he in the back of the cab, yeah. looking out the window as the snow is falling down. Um, and I, I do think that is uh, one of the better uh, scenes in any film that uh, I've seen this year. Uh, so almost by virtue of that scene alone, uh, I have sort of, I think, been thinking about the day after. Um, have you watched it again? I have not watched it again, but no, I would I like to. Um, but and I haven't seen a Hong film that I liked less on on rewatch yet, so I'm sure I will like it more. But that being said, I don't think it has uh, anything on on the beach at night alone, which I saw at the beginning of the year and and wrote that piece for Seattle Screen Scene on, and um, which I have returned to uh, just throughout the whole year. I mean that the sort of wintry, um, desolate sense uh, that the landscapes in that film uh, sort of evoke and Kim Min-hee's performance and the image of her laying on the beach uh, alone, uh, all of that has really just sort of like hovered like a cloud uh, over the year for me. Uh, and I haven't really been able to shake on the beach at night alone and despite my admiration for uh, a few of the the sequences and the day after and uh, the fun that i had hearing your crazy uh, theories about claire's camera uh, <laughs> on the beach at night alone I, I really do think has the the potential to be one of my favorite uh, hong films as time goes on so i've actually been afraid to rewatch on the beach um We've had a, a screener here for it for a while, and I really should. It's one of it's one of my favorite films of the year. But there's something so kind of raw and emotional about it, or at least my reaction to it the first time I saw it, that I'm like afraid to go back there, which is not normally an experience I have with Hong Sang Soon. Nor normally, it's it's more like yourself and yours or. Uh, Claire's camera, which I can just watch over and over again and come up with with new, newer, crazier explanations for how their their universes work. Uh, on the beach is is not like that at all for me, and I think it's it's because of of Kim's performance. I think she's she's so great, uh, and uh, yeah, I haven't been convinced by the the pro day after arguments either. Yeah, I uh, actually had that same feeling for uh, rewatching On the Beach and I Alone. It is my favorite film of the year, and I rewatched it when it played at North Coast Film Forum uh, a few weeks ago. And it it was like Claire's camera. It actually got only more mysterious for me on rewatch. Like just even though I knew basically how things were going to happen. Like I was, I think especially struck on rewatch about like the, the stillness of the, of the Hamburg section of the first third or so the first part of the film uh, that it's not, I can't really recall anything that made me feel that way 
in in Hong's filmography, it has this. I wouldn't exactly call it gentleness, but like definitely the stillness, this consideration that I think feels very personal for Hong, and I get some of that feeling also. Um, and that's contrasted with the second part, which is technically more familiar territory, and that's why I feel warmer about that part. But nevertheless, there's something very interesting in the way these two parts are juxtaposed. And like I, there's, I'm partial to the theory that the first part is a film that, or yeah. is almost like a pro projection of of Younghee, a Kim and He's character, her her thoughts about like the, about what she's undergoing, and that's only supported for me because I don't think they mention Hamburg once, like they don't mention the name of the city that she was staying in in the second part, nor do they mention that she's an actress in the first part, and like so so that could be one of Hong's structural uh, structural ploys again, but there's something very odd and very mournful in the way that on the beach and I alone plays for me that that just like really fascinates me and I do love it but I think I keep loving it in different ways yeah I think that's how is it tale of cinema that is mm -hmm. split in the middle and it turns out the first half was a movie that a character was watching that was based on their life yes that's uh, yeah tale of cinema yeah uh, I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, that's a good one. Very I've good. Heard, I've heard. <laughs> I'm slowly making way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. And uh, Claire's camera for me is, despite like some, some like really harsh, cruel moments and, and like this deep kind of sadness underlying it is, is still so much fun for me to to even watch and, and think about. I mean, I think I've exhausted the topic, but <laughs> well, at least I, for now, but. Yeah, I, I, I don't think On the Beach at Night Alone is fun, really. Um, and, and even like The Day After, which I, I don't think of as a particularly fun song <laughs> either, and like is like opens with the main character weeping, more or less, which, which <laughs> sets the tone for that film, ends up in a place when uh, Kim and he confronts him again, uh, and he doesn't remember her of a, a kind of comedy and a kind of um, yeah. I also don't think he's the main character. Well, that, I think the movie does shift to be about Kim in the second half, and that's actually one reason why I think I I don't like it quite as much um, because I prefer that the oh. whole movie was just about her. Um, right. But um, but but I guess. I don't think On the Beach at Night Alone is is a particularly fun uh, Hong film. No. And I think the reason that it works so much better for me, though, than, say, those early Hong films, which which are not particularly fun either, um, you know, Virgin Strip Air by Her Bachelors or uh, The Day the Pig Fell Under the Well, which is, is really quite bleak, is the more that On the Beach at Night Alone has sat with me, the more that it just seems to be emerging from something that is very emotionally true for Hong. And that uh, sounds obvious given the, the background of the film and, and the fact that the affair they had together informed that. But in a way it's almost recoded how I see those early Hong films, 
Um, I think there's this this sort of trajectory that people see in Hong's career where he starts out as very serious and then becomes more kind of prankstery as as time goes on and, and more willing to be playful. And there's some truth in that, but I I don't find those early films, the the sort of darkness of them to be that they don't seem to emerge from a place of like true emotional they're, uh, not, they're not convincing. Exactly. And and there's a way in which that darkness now reads to me more like a kind of pranksterism. It's just that the kind of pranksterism that Hong likes has changed over time and has gotten lighter and on the surface more fun. And On the Beach at Night Alone is is like one of those early Hong films. Like he revisits their kind of desolate look and the landscapes I think look more like they they do in those early films and yet there's something that has happened to him over time where he's able to tap into that emotional reality uh, of the film and the desolation and the despair um, much more convincingly for me. Um, well, I think, I think he's really grown as a filmmaker um, in, in the last decade as opposed to the first decade of his career. And primarily the, like, the difference is that he started to build his films around the, the female character instead of the male character. And like something like uh, Woman is the Future of Man or Woman on the Beach um, has like a similar coldness and cruelty to, to On the Beach at Night Alone, but it just, it plays as, as mean in those films and just cynical. Whereas in, in, on, the, in on the Beach, it's, it's melancholy and, and sad. Um, it's still like raw and emotional, but but it's more it's more felt and it's more tempered by uh, a broader understanding of human relationships. I think, mm -hmm. and like that's I think that's spelled out most strongly for me in that first uh, soju sodden scene, uh, like which takes place between five people and the way that it navigates the relationships that they have with each other in that conversation uh, is really, really well done. And it, of course, in, uh, concludes with that, with one, maybe the funniest moment I've seen in a film this year, which I won't say. Yeah, well, and the other thing that I, that has I think stood out to me more as I've I've sat with the film is just thinking again how it connects to the earlier part of his career. You know, death is something that seems very alien to me from the recent Hong films, other than um, I think the Power of Kangwon Province, which has like a death occur. Uh, off screen, and uh, the day that Pig fell into the well, which which ends with with the murder. Uh, like violence and, and death d don't really seem to be something that enters these later Hong films. And even though there's nothing like explicitly death haunted about On the Beach at Night Alone, there's like some sense that I've been left with it with that film of like something kind of fundamentally like Grim Reaper-ish about Kim in that film and she seems to bring the melancholy and this kind of um, this death-like air 
uh, with her wherever she goes. And um, yeah, there's there's the mysterious window washing figure who mm-hmm. who may be the same figure that picks her up on and like carries her away in the first half. That some have interpreted as like symbolic of death or something. Well, see, and I don't even know that it's that that character for me. Like, there's something about Kim that that seems to bring that uh, with her. I mean, it, like you think of that shot, and and maybe death is is too uh, weighted uh, a concept, but like the shot of her alone in that movie theater, uh, you know, she just seems to have this. She just repels people in this film. Uh, you know, I mean, it's right there in the title. Like, she just yeah. Well, that could be a function of the of the scandal and the way that that's brought this undefinable like sense of loss or being marked by something, mm-hmm. and like that could be Hong projecting his his own or perhaps Kim's own uh, feelings about that and the way that the public uh, have public's perception has been shaped by that. I'm not sure like how much of that is the character and how much of that is Hong's own or even our own perceptions about his film. Yeah, because the the character is the is the object of a scandal, just as mm-hmm. as Kim was in in reality. Um, so there's this she's isolated but always being observed at the same time, and that incomplete like the tension between the two, between, you know, being always surrounded by, by people, but being alone among them is, is what Kim brings like wordlessly to the part. Just the sense of isolation, despite being the object of everyone's attention. And it's interesting that that happens, like, because there are some like very strong, interactions that like between that she has with characters like these very palpable connections like it manages to to balance those two quite effortlessly and i'm not sure quite how it does it just like the way that hong's trademark very normal yet very meaningful conversations have developed like it manages to hold those things together very well I mean, I don't, uh, to go back to the window washer, I don't think that he is death. <laughs> no, I don't either. It's too pat, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's like a, somebody who's seen too many Bergman movies. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, it's just not how, how Hong works. Thank God. Thank God. All right, so... Let's move on. Uh, Evan, go ahead and pick another movie. Uh, so I think the other film that I wanted to mention, which uh, I think is now starting to uh, get a little bit more uh, attention uh, in recent uh, weeks as people are sort of trying to do uh, a 2017 uh, catch-up, uh, but which was, for me, when I saw it at the beginning of the year, a more or less unknown quantity uh, entirely, uh, is Sleep Has Her House. Uh, by Scott Barley, who is a uh, a young uh, experimental filmmaker, and this is his first feature film. Uh, it's a film that is more or less in the 
tradition of experimental landscape films uh, in that it is entirely uh, depopulated. It is composed of shots of um, forests and um, animals in the forests, uh, mountains and, and water landscapes uh, entirely. And yet it is it felt like a totally new experience to me. I think it was the, the only film I saw this year that really felt like I had never quite seen anything uh, like it before. It takes these, these natural landscapes uh, or Barley takes these landscapes that he's filming, uh, which he actually, I think shot on an iPhone um, and he runs them through a, a whole bunch of digital manipulation uh, so that he crushes the light and the landscapes take on this totally like crepuscular, nocturnal, almost like otherworldly or underworldly uh, look to them. So it's really among one of the literally darkest movies I've I've ever seen. Um, I can't imagine trying to watch this like in in the day during the day when there's sunlight glaring in because you wouldn't be able to see anything. The blacks are so crushed that you know there'll be like a, a deer you know, sort of moving through the forest in the background of a shot. And, and that's sort of clearly the, the subject of the shot uh, that Barley's interested in. Uh, and yet it's it's so dark and the deer is almost like this phantom um, image uh, that is, that almost looks like a, like a faded film, like nitrate film or something like that, uh, that's moving across the landscape. So the, the way that he uh, sort of manipulates these images makes the landscapes um, sort of hyper- abstract and and romantic like the the look of the film and the colors um has something of the look of of like a romantic painting uh and i think it has a, a similar kind of relationship to uh nature that uh, sort of like classical romanticism has like nature is this sort of terrifying almost horrific force in a way uh the movie has a, an almost sort of horror like uh, tone to it um and yet it has this like tremendous nature has this tremendous overwhelming um, power that that's sort of awe inspiring despite the things about it that are, are really terrifying. Uh, and the movie is just just filled with shots like that that evoke this this almost like psychic power of, of nature that's unlike any uh, movie that I've ever really seen and and really takes the idea of the sort of experimental landscape film as practiced by people like Peter Hutton or, or James Bending and turns it into something um, that is just uh, in touch with something like really primordial and, and strange. And uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend this film highly enough. If you guys uh, haven't seen it. I haven't even as, heard of it. That sounds really as a, great though. As a theatrical release uh, adherence, I have not seen it. Uh, I did play in Vancouver, so it was in the uh, Seattle screen scene orbit, as uh, as we've defined it. But yeah, it hasn't played in Seattle yet, unfortunately. Played I this, did play this year? I yeah, I played a few months ago. Oh, right wow. after Viv. Yeah. Oh, right after Viv. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, he so Scott Barley was uh, you know primarily like a Vimeo artist. Uh, mm -hmm. A bunch of his short films, which actually some of his short films in their entirety uh, are included in Sleep Hazard House. Um, and so, you know, many of his short films you can watch online on Vimeo, um, you know, for free and the shorts themselves are very, very startling and, and very striking. 
Um, and you get a, a very clear sense of, of the sort of like visual texture of these films and, and his interests that I'm, I'm trying to describe. But the, the force of combining all of these images together uh, really, uh, it, like you don't have any sense watching the film that it's composed of a number of shorts uh, that he's strung together. It has this, like actually I think many landscape films don't have a really clear sort of arc in the images and the the mood that the images evoke and it eventually ends in this like really um like abstract almost uh like the 2001 stargate sequence kind of place uh that has this light that you're watching sort of uh with a flicker effect and because the movie is so dark and i i watched it basically in in pitch black and there's this sort of like flickering light at the end it actually had like a physical effect on my eye that I genuinely had never uh, experienced watching a movie before. Um, that uh, I don't even really know how to describe it, but sort of like this strange effect of like persistence of vision with this like blue light um, that is like sort of humming in, in this like super crushed black uh, space of the film. Uh, anyways. It's uh, it's really wonderful, and uh, I can't wait to see whatever uh, Scott Barley makes next. Awesome, <laughs> uh, Ryan, you're up. Um, I'm gonna bring up. Actually, before that, we should mention since we, uh, uh, I would easily pick Twin Peaks: The Return, but as it's not a movie. It's it's a it's a film to TV hybrid. I'm <laughs> very adamant on this point. It's it, it's, it's a TV show. It <laughs> it's a it's it it's a TV defi- it defies mediums. So it doesn't. It's uh, a TV show. But regardless, <laughs> okay, we'll leave this debate. But uh, to stick with uh, films, everyone can agree are films. It's mm-hmm. uh, a terrific so- TV show. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay, we'll go with a good time the, by the Safdie brothers, um, starring Robert Pattinson as a uh, as a low life criminal who, in the beginning, the in the beginning of the film, uh, breaks his brother out of uh, his mentally disabled brother out of psychiatric care, and they rob a bank and attempt to get money to just leave society and the heist goes wrong. His brother is captured and arrested, taken to Rikers Island. And it follows this main character, Connie, as he tries to uh, break his brother out of prison. It takes place over the course of a single night and it just manages to sustain this this feeling, this vibe for for two hours that's just really striking. I don't know, like, I respond to it, like, just on a very visceral level, like, part of it's just, like, the, just the, the, the way that direction, cinematography by Sean Price Williams and the soundtrack by Electric's Point Never just all coalesce together, just really moves me and the way that it just moves forward without ever like it there's only rarely moments that like genuinely like 
jump out. It's just more a collection of little moments that that feel of a piece with the fundamentally improvisatory, reactionary way that Connie works that just that just really worked for me. It just works together in a way that that by the ends, by this final edit, just make it a really emotional experience for me. I'm surprised that uh, Good Time has gotten quite the the love that it has. Uh, I find the Safdies brother, well, I, I should say, I find it very impressive in the ways that you're describing it. The score and the, the sort of pop colors uh, in it and the, the way that it is so propulsive is like undeniably, uh, it grabbed me in that way, I, I guess I, I must admit, but I really find myself like deeply skeptical of whatever it is that the Safdie's project is and their interest in this kind of uh, like scuzzy underworld um, that they populate uh, with people who, uh, I think they try to skirt uh, finding people that they think are more or less reprehensible and yet give them just enough humanity to get off free from any accusation of, of being really sort of uh, exploitative themselves. And I don't know, despite the, the ways in which the, the technical aspects of the film are impressive, that sort of bad taste that uh, their films and, and this film in particular leave me with, uh, I just can't quite get, get that taste out of my mouth. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. Uh, and there's def, and I do agree that I'm surprised that in these end of year lists it's turning up very highly uh, because like there are undoubtedly many uh, passionate defenders of it, but there are, but I don't think it's a film that that at least like during its release, I don't think it was a film that really got a universal critical acclaim. And it, and I get that because it feels like a dangerous film to me. Like it's constantly like there's ways that it could have gone wrong, and like it gets very close to that at times because of these reprehensible characters and the way that it, that the Safety Brothers focus on them. But I do think that it does come back to this idea of their humanity. Like it genuinely believes in Connie's uh, love for his brother. And like his desire to to break him out, like driving these, and when it devolves uh, in like the in the closing minutes, when it devolves into uh, a desire for money, I think they manage that shift very well. How do you read the uh, the opening and closing scenes with with Benny Benny Safdie playing the uh, the brother? Well, I think they they made me very uncomfortable. Well, I think that's well. This is bringing in outside information, but like I I know that they tried to that they were trying to uh, cast a actually mentally disabled actor, but they decided that that would have been exploitative. Exploitative, and I agree. And I don't think that it's not Benny's, so much with Benny playing the role, but just the role of that character and and those sure. scenes. Sure. Um, 
yeah, it's I'm I am still trying to get a hold of it, especially since like the the way that the closing plays and plays under the credits, which is it's also an interesting choice. But I do think that I I don't think that they're trying to make as much a point about the character as about his surroundings, like his placement in these clinical, well-meaning, but still very flawed and, uh, the structures designed to supposedly uh, care for him. And like, it's, I think maybe it's to suggest that, that trying to find legitimate care is uh, almost a dream, almost a dream, a pipe dream that can't really be, that can't really take place in this society that's been, that's been made for him. Hmm. See, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really see how that fits with all of the rest of the movie. What is a story of, of individual against society? Like it, keeps coming back to that and well it is that but also in the way that how individuals can exploit the way society works like the way that that Akani exploits his status as a white man uh in many in many scenes throughout the film yeah see it i it played to me like a genre film trying to dress itself up as an art film because it uh, it doesn't have the courage to just be a movie about a terrible guy having a, a rough night. Exactly. I think it's just a genre film, or not just a genre film. I think it, it is a genre film. I don't think it's trying to be an art film in any way. Like, it might have that pedigree since it played at Cannes, and it's by these... Well, by no, these I, th I think, I think with the, the prologue and the epilogue, I think it's... It's trying well, I don't think to be it's... something other than what it actually is, and it feels yeah, and you see first... this in a lot of readings about it. Like, like there's a very tortured reading that the film is about white privilege. I I think yeah, I don't find that reading I... tortured actually. I must say, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it 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 might demonstrate that in a few scenes, but. I mean, it, it's a movie about a guy trying to work his way out of a problem and everything goes wrong and things just keep getting worse and worse. It's it's after hours, but like entirely contained within the zoom in on Mark Wahlberg and the Sister Christian scene in Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that sounds like a film I enjoy. Yeah, and I like that. I just, yeah, the, the rest of it, yeah. And oh, yeah, I, like, didn't, I, I didn't have that problem with Heaven Knows What. I, 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 pre I preferred that movie. And that had you know some authenticity to it from the fact that it was based on the life story of the lead actress and, and mm -hmm. her you know, memoir about her life. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I thought that was more... It was less trying to be like, socially conscious. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I think it's the opening and closing are driven first and foremost by the emotional tenor of the film. They're like, they, they feel at least emotionally of a piece with everything else. And that's yeah, see, they feel totally really separate yeah. to me. Yeah. I don't feel like they feel like emotionally of a piece at all. I mean, that's where I really, those scenes are really where I locate my 
like issue as I, I sort of articulated with the Safties. Like I think they're so, and this gets I think to maybe what Sean's saying about how it's a, a genre film trying to be an art house film. Like I think they're so afraid of being accused uh, of of not being at core like something like a humanist in in some way. Uh, that they sort of tack this this moment on to suggest that there's some sort of warmth in this film. And as Sean suggests, I think they they don't quite have the courage to go all the way and make it a film that is like sort of of the cinema of, of like cruelty and malice, like something like a Lang film or something like that. Like they're not that committed to um, I the think, I think the Neville Bean and Taylor could have made like 90% of, of good time. <laughs> and there are people who I think are committed to a kind of, an ultimately what is a kind of anti-human nihilism in a way. Um, and well, I just don't think that they see them that uh, the Safety brothers see themselves as nihilists. I think that first and foremost is the emotions and the way that that can lead down to that can lead to some very dark places. I don't know, like it it. It worked for me. Like every scene, every pretty much every moment worked for me, and I, I think it's just like the way that they have this command of a feeling of of representing the way that of representing the way that the character feels, and in a way that how that can sometimes separate entirely from the way that the film feels. Yeah, and like, like I said, I I really like everything else in the movie, like all of the Robert Pattinson stuff. I think is is terrific, mm-hmm. and he's great, and all the actors yeah. are great. It's a yes, it's a terrific cast. It's a it's a really mm-hmm. fun caper film that yeah tries to be something else. Uh, well, I'm <laughs> not sure about that part. <laughs> uh, all right, so. Uh, hang on a sec. <laughs> oh, I'll give you guys a choice. I think. Okay. Uh, Should be good. Yes. Uh, I can either talk about Mother, the oh, Darren Aronofsky film, oh, or <laughs> uh, Herman Yao. Uh, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen the Herman Yao though. I haven't seen likely either of them, so. Mm. Oh God, <laughs> I was I was wondering if you're going to bring up Mother, and like. I'm actually very curious. I was shocked to find that you liked Mother as much as you did. So I'm quite curious to hear you uh, tell us why you uh, were so taken by by Mother. Okay, uh, Mother it is. Herman Yao had a great year. He made he made three movies, much like Hong Sang Soo. They're very different. And uh, they're all definitely worth worth watching. Uh, Mother, I like because <sighs> I like uh, crazy biblical Darren Aronofsky. I think uh, he has like an understanding of the strangeness of uh, of uh, like biblical mythology. To pick a word that should that has a value judgment but is not intended to, uh, that I find really fascinating. He gets kind of the old weirdness at the heart of, of the Genesis stories that go back, you know, thousands of years. Like, I, I, I loved his, uh, 
his like reimagining of the Noah myth in Noah, and this as the story of of uh, the Garden of Eden of of Genesis is is just fascinating to me the way he turns it into this kind of weird like home invasion thriller or this kind of fucked up relationship drama and there's you know it's just so full of of potential meaning it's just like bursting all over the place it's it's so exciting to me <laughs> well i okay okay uh I, I should i should preface this first by saying that i am christian uh yeah with uh yeah, with, I am a Christian. I've been since uh, since childhood, and I haven't seen Noah. Uh, the bits I've seen of it looked fairly interesting, but also potentially just kind of dull. I don't know. But I, uh, Mother, I despised intensely. It was my least favorite film of the year, uh, or the worst film I saw this year by my judgments. And to I first think that the I have very strong problems with the with taking the biblical aspect as the sole fundamental metaphor that mother is working with uh, because so much of it feels like there are certainly events that match up but I don't think that they have nearly the impacts that that they do like um, the notion for instance, that the that the film is divided into the Old and New Testament by the uh, by the unbraced sink and the metaphorical flood that happens, like that. For one, that takes out like thirty books in the Old Testament, like completely ignores like Kings and Proverbs and all, all of that, all the history uh, stuff. Yes, oh, all the history stuff, yes, which, and I don't know, like, the, the way that, like, I I will admit that a lot of it is technically done in the way that I'm sure Aronofsky intended, uh, such as the decision to shoot half of the film in smothering close-up on, on Jennifer Lawrence, but I just find so much of it spectacularly unappealing, just, like, the odd way that the framings work like shoved up against actors faces just doesn't work for me. Like I'll, so much of it, I get that intention. You, you, just, you were just fish, praising but, good time. <laughs> yeah. The way that they had like this way, the way that the, in, that the close-ups bounced off of each other felt just so I, much I more, active, just, so much more, so, so much more. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Like I, I was very shocked to see how many people I wouldn't have expected pra to appraising mother to, to praise it. Um, and that's not necessarily a, anything specifically against the film, just against what I would have expected to people to get out of it. It's a fascinating film. I definitely think it's a fascinating film that's worth talking about. It's just, I, I hated it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's got it's got two things that I really love in movies and and you know a movie that has both elements is something that I'm always going to respond to and the first is like really good um 
like visceral like genre filmmaking whether it's action scenes or musical scenes or like you know thriller horror scenes which this one has in spades it's you know all of these kind of horrific like things happening to Jennifer Lawrence's house and the way she just flips out and then that like completely you know did uh, degeneration of the house into you know centuries of of like conflict and and war and the whole thing just breaking down in the last was like 20 minutes half an hour that feels like mm-hmm. one long unbroken shot throughout all of human history uh, you know I I'm just gonna eat that up and then on top of it it has like this these allegorical readings that I can, you know, spend hours, you know, theorizing about and and coming up with like all kinds of of weird connections. Like, you know, like the figuring out that Ed Harris is is Adam and just by the fact that uh, the first night he's there, he's had a rib removed and then Michelle Pfeiffer shows up. I I did miss completely miss that. Like I had to look up later. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, Which... and and it's just like fit, trying to fit all of like once I figured out that this was a the Genesis story that this was what was happening. Then the rest of the film, you're trying to to map what's going on on screen to uh, to the you know the the biblical story. So it's like putting together a puzzle. So if you you put like my joy of solving puzzles with my joy of like cinema that is like viscerally engaging. You have a movie that I'm going to love. Oh, so, it set aside the fact that it's like completely blasphemous, which <laughs> I that that doesn't really bother me, like the yeah. blasphemous part. But I first, well, I think that I do respond much more strongly to the idea that it's about an artist like it's about the artist as god basically like that seems much more cogent and interesting than simply fitting people together with biblical I, figures I, like that that I doesn't think it's more god as artist rather than I think belief. artist as god <laughs> it's yeah <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> but uh and i don't know like the um the way that just things just happen like the you said that basically the all of all violence done in human history being done in that in a house over like the course of what in real time seems about seems exactly the same amount of time like 30 minutes mm-hmm. that it just felt like things happening like it didn't really have a structure or really like an interesting way of grabbing onto it. Like it didn't, it felt just like a series of continuous crescendos, like, like Hans yeah. Zimmer's music in Dunkirk. Like it had that exact same effect on me, which is slightly alienating. I don't know. I mean, it, it, that is, that is the sweep of human history though. It's like you, 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 you keep thinking that it can't possibly get any crazier and worse and then it does. And it just keeps going and going and going. And it, 
it would. sounds like a 2017 movie if there ever was one. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, time would do all kinds of like weird stretching and compressing if you're an immortal, you know, generative being. I I guess I don't know. It just felt it felt dull. It was a it was a dull experience for me uh, i was that, on the edge of my couch the entire time <laughs> <laughs> i will say this for mother which i have not seen which is that the more that i hear about it the genuinely the more confused i am in trying to like map out what this movie is in my head like i've been hearing about it and seeing people say oh spoilers for mother and as you're talking about i have no idea what you guys are talking this about and in regards right. to this movie uh, which does kind of make me want to see it, despite not really caring about Darren Aronofsky. So maybe I'll watch it this weekend. It sounds pretty crazy. I like, I like Aronofsky a lot. I haven't seen his uh, the drug movie that everybody likes. Oh, yeah, I've actually never seen that either. Uh, I, I haven't seen any Aronofsky before this. I don't know what it's called. I saw Parts of Black Swan. Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream, yeah. Uh, I swore off junkie movies and mm. just before that came out. So I haven't seen it, but I, I really liked Pi when it came out. Um, I wrote about it in college. I liked uh, The Fountain, and uh, I really liked Noah. But uh, Black Swan is is fun. That's another uh, genre film that that tries to be an art film, whereas uh, uh, apparently I'm down with genre films that try to be biblical epics. So. <laughs> yeah, that's like we got two of those tonight. So yeah, <laughs> I mean not biblical epics in the case yeah. of Abu Bali, but uh, religious, uh, cultural epics, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is interesting, like just how much Aronofsky stuffs into that last half hour, because like a lot of the rest is a more, if not thematically or narratively obvious then at least from a filmmaking perspective well besides besides his extravagant use of sound design which emphasizes every single creak in the house every single mm -hmm. uh ring of a spoon on a sink or something like that besides that it's more of generating a sense of unease which works in some cases but for the most part, left me cold. Yeah, I mean, I I totally understand why it's a divisive film. And I saw mm -hmm. it months after everyone else did, so I didn't really... Yes. I wasn't really privy to the arguments as they were happening. I was just tuning it out. But, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I didn't know anything about it, watching it, other than uh, that some people liked it and some people hated it. Mm -hmm. So... Which was kind of the same with Noah. I mean, I knew that that was about Noah, but mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I also came to it like six months after it came out and and had been discussed in you know in the conversation. So mm -hmm. I think maybe maybe coming to them after makes me like them more. I don't know. Mm. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Or it insulates me from the the negative responses. So I'm more receptive to it. I don't know. I like Crazy Daronofsky when he makes Bible movies. If I want to see his uh, 
is like story of Job. I want to see it. So <laughs> Jonah and the whale. I want to see his, his like, judges. Joseph his judges mini series. Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, his like David and Goliath would be would be interesting. Mm. He should just he should do them all. <laughs> <laughs> have a whole have a whole yeah. set. I mean, he did mother, like shot, wrote and shot mother in a very short time span. He could find some way of adapting them all in a relatively brief period of years, I suppose. Yeah, let's do it. Deuteronomy, the movie, can't, can't. Uh, Le- Leviticus. <laughs> Exodus. We need, we need a, a better Exodus movie than, uh, was that Ridley Scott? Fair enough. Who did the yeah. last one? Yeah, we need a real, a real uh, Ten Commandments. It's time for a Ten Commandments remake. Another one? A good one. Oh. <laughs> I haven't seen the, I haven't seen either. Has there been the one version? other than the, the Ridley Scott one? No, uh, the Charlton Heston. Yeah. 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 That one's great. Mm. Love the Ten Commandments. I haven't seen it. Yeah. We used to watch it every uh, Easter. Yep. Staple of uh, childhood. <laughs> How long is it? It's like, oh, it's like four hours long or something. <laughs> when, when, you have, uh, when you have the commercials in, it's, yeah. it's really long. <laughs> it's great, though. Yul Brenner. Uh, Edward G. Robinson, is that right? Oh, that's who? He's like one of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's getting late. Uh, Melissa, her power is still out. Uh, oh. She sent us her top ten list, so I'm going to go ahead and, and mention those. And uh, I think we like quite a few of the movies that she's seen here. Um, she has 24 frames, A Quiet Passion, Claire's Camera, of course, uh, Faces <laughs> Places, Top of the Lake China Girl, Personal Shopper, Wonder Woman, which I haven't seen yet. I I am not, I do not like it. Yeah. Or I, yeah. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, Florida Project, To Get Out, and Lady Bird. Uh, 24 frames, I think we talked about at the VIF podcast. Yeah, Melissa talked about it, I believe. Yeah. Come out next, release being released next year, I believe. Yeah, that's no, uh, the Buskir Stami's final movie. It's uh, it's terrific. Did you see it, Evan? No, I I really wish I had seen it in Vancouver, but it played a day early for me. So mm-hmm. you didn't you missed it too, right, Ryan? Yes. Uh, I you guys both will dig it. It's it's mm-hmm. really great, and. Uh, most of the other movies that all of the other movies I've seen on her list are, are terrific as well. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's a good list. <laughs> yeah. uh, is there anything uh, further you want to mention before we wrap up uh, 2017? Uh, should mention Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which Sean and I have seen. Uh, which we, it's not being released. In Seattle until the nineteenth of January, I the believe. 12th. The twelfth. Oh, the twelfth. Oh, okay, that's good. Um, it's it's terrific and genuinely shocking in ways that for which, especially as someone who generally who likes Paul Thomas Anderson a lot, but is also slightly baffled by him. 
like part of the reason why Inherent Vice is still my favorite of his is that it feels different from his other films in the way that like, I really respond to. But Phantom Thread is entirely of a piece with the uh, with his progression from There Will Be Blood to The Master um, to this. It very controlled, very surprising, and uh, it's a film that I'll puzzle over and love for a long time. It's really funny. It's a lot of it fun. It is. <laughs> it's great. Uh, how about you, Evan? Uh, I thought I'd mention uh, just briefly at the end here, uh, Resident Evil, the final <laughs> chapter, nice. which I feel like has not gotten quite the, the love that it deserves uh, as everyone's doing their year-end list, partly because I think it came out so early in the year, but um, I actually think that, uh, Sean, the piece you wrote on it uh, for Seattle Screen Scene is, uh, I think, really fantastic. I, the best thing I read on the film. Um, and I'd highly recommend everyone go uh, read Sean's piece uh, if you piece. haven't yet. Um, it, but plays, I, it plays better if you read it while listening to Boston. <laughs> I know, yeah, I did see your tweet about that. Uh, Huh. Well, I didn't read it while listening to Boston, but I still like the piece. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the film is a uh, really fascinating way to end what is, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, though it's sort of a uh, it's like B-side uh, Hollywood series to the like Marvel tent poles and, and all that stuff that, frankly, I don't have a lot of interest in. Uh, I think it really like embodies... Uh, the most, the things that are most interesting and all of the various possibilities of sort of Hollywood filmmaking in the 21st century uh, in a way that really no one else is, is trying to do. It's sort of like classic termite art in, in mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I wish that we had more films uh, like that coming out in theaters uh, every month that were willing to rewrite the rules of their own uh, mythology and, and be so strange and personal um, while at the same time they uh, sort of also conform to all these uh, genre rules that have uh, been set out uh, because it is, you know, after all, a, a popular uh, popular action film. So uh, Resident Evil, I think, deserves a little more love. So. Yeah, I think I think in the future uh, this series will will be seen as define as defining this this period of the transition between from film to to digital and from practical to CGI in uh, in mainstream cinema. Like I think I think they will they will last where the Marvel films will not. Right. Well, and they provide such a perfect test case because it starts as I think as you're suggesting uh, with significantly more uh you know analog effects in those early films that were shot on film and uh, they do become very different as they go on yeah and it and they 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 take that as their their subject as the films go on this this transformation of reality from a physical thing to a digital simulacrum becomes yeah. like just the nature of the world where where yeah. everything is it's fungible and everything can be shifted or resurrected or cloned or erased and started over again. It's, uh, 
Yeah, it's a it's a film I keep forgetting to bring up in, <laughs> in reference to this year because because it premiered in Japan in like the last yep. week of December of 2016, mm -hmm. so it counts as a 2016 film for me. Mm -hmm. So every time I look at my list, it's not on it. That's why you keep two lists. That's, yeah, that's why I got to keep two lists. But <laughs> yeah, the Resident Evil movies are great. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a bunch of other movies I can mention. I think one thing I haven't talked about at all really is uh, is Lucky, which is this like little film about Harry Dean Stanton and tar starring Harry Dean Stanton as an old man who's about to die. And it's really warm and really funny. It's got a great uh, supporting performance from David Lynch. Uh, mm -hmm. It was the best movie David Lynch was in in 2017. Incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's a great last movie for, for an actor who never really got uh, his due, I think except uh, for those of us who know better. Harry Dean Stanton was, uh, was one of the best. And yeah, that's, that's, it's a very little movie. It's very slight, it's very easy to watch. But if you are a Harry Dean Stanton fan, and uh, you should be, um, it's, it's worth it to, to seek it out. Because it kind of encompasses him in a way that, that few movies uh, about an actor do I think he's he's like my leading pick for the best actor of the year so I've been meaning to watch it for like two months now and I still haven't gone around to it it's, oh. it's totally it's like, like barely 90 minutes long <laughs> and and David Lynch gives a speech about a turtle it's, it's <laughs> or a tortoise I can't remember anyway. <laughs> uh, that is it for the Francis Farmer Show 2017 year in review uh, thanks to you guys for, uh, for all of the work you did on Seattle Screen Scene this year and for joining me on the podcast thanks for having us on thank you very much and uh, we will be back for more stuff in 2018 when perhaps Melissa will have read Last of the Mohicans. Who <laughs> <laughs> knows? All right. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, we will see you all in 2018.